The covenant faithfulness we sing of is proclaimed in Genesis chapter 48. I invite you to turn there. Genesis 48. Saw last time Jacob coming towards the end of his life and making Joseph, his son, swear to carry out his bones, not burying him in Egypt, but bringing him to the land of Canaan. And now tonight, Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 49, which we don't look at tonight, but later on, Jacob will bless all his sons. Remember again the order of the patriarchs, Abraham, the one whom God called out of Ur of the Chaldeans and made the great promises to, a promise to multiply his descendants, a promise to give him a land, the land of Canaan, a promise to make his family a blessing to the world. So God was choosing this man and his family to work salvation for the world. Then after him, Isaac, and then after him, Jacob, who receives also the name Israel, and from Jacob, Israel... Twelve sons, including this Joseph who went before them into Egypt, uh, a slave in Egypt, but has saved their lives and brought the whole family down to Egypt that they might be preserved from the famine. And now it's years later. Jacob has lived there. Was it 17 years he spent in the land of Canaan? But now that time has come to an end. Genesis 48 at verse 1. Now it came to pass... After these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his, right, with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. 
Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. There ends the reading of God's word for tonight. Let's bow together, shall we? Gracious Father in heaven, would you please be pleased to visit us tonight by your Holy Spirit and to teach us by your word. We thank you for your great covenant faithfulness, and we pray that you would teach us through the faith and the declaration of faith heard from the lips of Father Jacob here. Hear us, Father, and give us your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you could be remembered, if you could be remembered for one incident in your life, your whole life, which would you choose, what moment would you choose to be remembered by? It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews and that great faith chapter of Hebrews 11, when he selects one incident from the life of Father Jacob, do you know what he selects? He selects the one before us tonight. Hebrews 11, verse 21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's it. Now, the writer of Hebrews actually selects three deathbed scenes in a row and puts them together. The deathbed of Isaac, and then of Jacob, and then of Joseph, and in each case, telling us what it is they proclaimed on their deathbed. In each case, they spoke of the blessing to the future generation, or what was yet to come. Each case, they, they, they believed that God would fulfill a promise that they did not yet see fulfilled, and so they looked to the future, and so they become instances, those three deathbed scenes of those who believe to the end, who believe past death, that God would keep his word. This morning we heard a profession of faith of a young man. Tonight in Genesis 48, we hear the profession of an old man in the face of death, he believes. And so it's marvelous here to see the perseverance of faith. And yet we should remember it's not, it's not the preservation of faith 
as a stagnant faith, or faith as a statue that's been unmoved all these years. But this has been a growing faith. And this Jacob we meet now at the end of his life on his deathbed is not the same Jacob, is he, that we have met before. Faith has grown. This is not the Jacob who deceived his father Isaac into stealing the blessing. This is not the Jacob who ran from Laban out of fear in a trickstery way. This is, not, this is not the Jacob who was terrified to meet Esau. This is not the Jacob who said when, when he thought Joseph was dead, I'm going to go down to my, to my grave in mourning. I will not be comforted. But God's been at work in his life. He's been going through the schooling under God's hand. And now he comes to the end of his life and his vision is dim. He's grown blind through his schooling, right? As we do when we grow older. But he's grown to see more deeply with his spiritual eyes, hasn't he? And so by faith, when dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph. He looked to the future and he worshiped the Lord. Let's look at that tonight as God encourages us to believe in his promises in this chapter here. Notice three things that are wonderful to see. First of all, Jacob extols the controlling promise of God. It's a promise of God that has that has shaped his entire life, it turns out. Secondly, we look at the mysterious path of grace. God's promise is sure, but God's means, his choice, his ways do not respect human expectations. And then thirdly, we want to see the triumphant perseverance to glory. The triumphant perseverance to glory. God preserves his faith to the end. So the promise of God, the path of grace, and the perseverance to glory. Well, first of all, we want to look at this controlling promise of God. Joseph is told that his father Jacob now is, is, is sick, is dying. He's been in the, in the land of Egypt now for a number of years. I think it was 17. And he's come to the end here. So, so Joseph comes to see his father. And Father Jacob is told Joseph is coming. He musters his strength to sit up in his bed and to be able to speak because he has an important word to speak. And it is remarkable how much, how much time the text gives to this meeting, right? Because it does matter. These are important words that are actually going to impact the church for centuries to come, right? Because these words are going to affect what happens when Israel, 400 years later, is brought out of Egypt and goes to the land of Canaan. And actually, these words, therefore, affect us tonight. It's the story of God's redemption. This family will have a huge significance upon the heavens and the earth. This is... This is the family in whom God is working his plan of salvation. And so this very prophecy, blessing, affects our lives tonight. Now, we can see how God has guided all things by his word and his promises. But already here, Jacob has begun to see it. And so the first thing he says to Joseph when he comes, the first recorded words, verses 3 and 4, he says, remember, God blessed me at Luz or as it came to be called, Bethel, the house of God. Remember, when Jacob was, was fleeing the land from Esau, God met him in the night at Bethel, or what he called Bethel, the house of God, and God proclaimed to him, I'm going to multiply your descendants, I'm going to give them the land, and through you I'm going to be a blessing to the world. Jacob here calls him, verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me, El Shaddai, the one who's able to use his power over all of creation to accomplish his purposes for redemption. This is the story of El Shaddai, the Almighty Covenant God. And now 
He's going to pass on these promises to his children, to Joseph and Joseph's children. And he's seen already the beginning of fulfillment. He says in verse 11 that he, he's amazed. He didn't think he'd ever see Joseph again. But not only has he seen Joseph, he's seen Joseph's children. And so the one he thought was dead stands before him with offspring. And God has done the impossible. El Shaddai, God Almighty, has given you back to me as if from the dead and to see your offspring. I'm beginning to see what God promised, that he would multiply my descendants. He stands amazed at this. God has done the impossible. It's good in our lives, isn't it, to, to make much of, of what God does. We don't always get to see or know. Sometimes, and oftentimes we're still waiting, aren't we, for the fulfillment of promises. But, but when we see that God has done something, we ought to glory in that. God has done beyond what I could have imagined. And we have those stories in our lives. And what follows then throughout the chapter is Jacob proclaiming the faithfulness of God. God didn't deceive me. God didn't give me up, though I failed him so often. God has, has taken care of my life. In fact, God's promises have controlled my existence. They have shaped my life. Things have worked according to his plan and purpose. And so Jacob is, is saying to, to Joseph and to Joseph's sons, who some estimate to be maybe 20 years old now at this point, He's saying, look at the story of my life. Isn't the story of my trying? Isn't the story of my scheming with my mother to get the blessing from Father Isaac instead of Esau getting it? It's not not the story of, of me acting cleverly. It's not the story of my mom's plans for me. It's not the story of me outsmarting Uncle Laban. It's not the story of what Esau might have done to me. It's not the story of how the Canaanites treated me or how the Egyptians gave our family land and food. This is the story of God's promise. God appeared to me. God Almighty appeared to me. And he spoke a word that has controlled my life. So Jacob's giving a history lesson, and this is one we're sitting up for. He rises up to declare it. But then take note that having learned this lesson in his life, he, he's trying now to impart it to the children of the church and to entrust them to the Lord. The God who blessed me will bless you. Before we look at that blessing, they'll notice he's adopting Joseph's two sons as his own. You see what's happening here? Father Jacob has 12 sons, right, from which will come the 12 tribes. But Father Jacob is saying to Joseph, it's not you, Joseph, who's going to have a tribe. But I'm actually adopting your two sons and elevating them to patriarchs. They will each have a tribe, and therefore Joseph will have a double blessing, a double inheritance. Now, why he does this, I mean, obviously it's the the work of our sovereign God, but why Jacob is led to do this, it's difficult to know other than the Lord led him that way. But we could note that in 1 Chronicles 5, we read the sons of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. The sons of Reuben lost the place because it says in First Chronicles 5 that Reuben defiled his father's bed. Remember, Reuben stole one of his father's wives or concubines. And so Reuben lost his place of firstborn. So somebody had to be selected for the double inheritance. And secondly, we can see that there's great joy and gratitude here for Jacob to bless Joseph because Joseph is the preserver of the church. God has saved the life of the church through Joseph from starvation. And thirdly, we could note that Jacob has great joy in doing this because 
This is the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel, the one he wanted to marry when he got tricked into marrying Leah also. And, and she died. She had two sons and then died. And so he speaks of Rachel in verse 7. She's on his mind. And he seems to want to honor her memory in this way by giving this double portion. But finally, S.G. de Graff and Promise and Deliverance suggests that Joseph and his son's connection to Egypt requires some special attention. Remember, these sons of Joseph are born of an Egyptian woman, right? Joseph, when he's in Egypt, is given, a, is given by Pharaoh an Egyptian wife. And what would become of these sons? Would they be absorbed into Egypt? Would they be lost in the world? God here, by elevating these sons of Joseph to patriarchal status, giving them as heads of tribes, is setting their eyes forward to the day when they'll be in the land of Canaan and pulling them out of Egypt, as it were, to keep their eyes ahead. But in any case, these two sons of Joseph, the grandsons, are adopted now as sons. Any sons born after this to Joseph will be counted beneath Ephraim and Manasseh. But then he gives them this blessing, this glorious blessing. It begins with a threefold description of God. God, I'm at verse 15. God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So, so Jacob is saying, look, at it. I didn't invent this religion. I didn't look for this God. He came looking for me. I am the heir of his revelation, received from Abraham, received from Isaac, given to me. God met us. I didn't seek him. And then he says that this God fed me or shepherded me my whole life long. And then he says, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil. One commentator writes, the angel had appeared at three crisis points in his life. At Bethel, chapter 28, Padam Aram, chapter 31, and Peniel, chapter 32. Jacob had recognized this angel as God himself. Throughout, excuse me, through the intervention of the angel, God had rescued him both from Laban and from Esau and had brought him home in safety according to his promise. It was humiliating to need such help and Jacob was recalling here the way God had humbled him into submission when all his instinct had been to work things out for himself. What's Jacob saying? He's saying, he's saying again, the God by which I bless you, my sons, my grandsons, is the God who sought me along the lines of Abraham and Isaac, the God who fed me when I deserved to be cast off for all my wickedness, and the angel who rescued me from all my troubles. I, I'm here by the grace of God. And in his name now I bless you, and I proclaim to you, this God watch over you, this God prosper you, this God grow you into a great multitude. So Jacob is proclaiming a blessing upon the future generations and he's entrusting them to the covenant Lord. And he's saying that there is a hope and a future for the church. Now, sometimes when we get older, and maybe especially lately as we watch a country turn more and more away from biblical norms, into perversions and all kinds of ridiculousness, we are tempted to say that things are horrible and to say to the next generations, we don't know what's going to happen with you. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know how you'll survive. 
But if we speak that way, then God would say to us, well, who do you think it was that's been watching over you? How do you think you got to where you are? Did America shepherd you? Did the U.S. Congress guard your soul? Did the Supreme Court, did they deliver you from all evil? But if you can say with Jacob, I was a mess. It's the God of my fathers who sought me. It's this God who shepherded me. It's this God who's redeemed me from all evil. Then what you're inclined to say to the next generation is, he's your God too, and he will do the same for you. He will do the same for you. We live by grace. We live by the faithfulness of the covenant Lord. He's never undone by whatever wicked ways the world goes. It can be Canaan. It can be Egypt. It can be America. But God is the Lord. The great El Shaddai, who ruler of creation, and is able to bend all the powers of nature, as it were, to serve his redemptive purpose. And he will care for the children, and the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren, and the church, for as long as Christ tarries, this God, my children, this God, my children, bless you. This God, keep you. This God, prosper you. Have we learned then tonight to see our lives not as our wisdom and our doing and our strength, but as the work of the God of grace who keeps his promise? And if we're learning to interpret our lives in those terms, then we're prepared to speak to the next generation and encourage them that God will do the same for them. So we see the controlling promise of God. But then we notice tonight that though God's promise is always true and he always keeps his word, He doesn't do it in the way we expect. Look at the mysterious path of grace. Something happens in the course of Genesis 48. The order of Joseph's sons are reversed. We read in verse 1 that Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But then we read in verse 5, Jacob saying, Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He reverses the order. Then Joseph brings the two sons to his father, and he he puts them, in terms of their birthright, Manasseh on the right side of Jacob, Ephraim on the left side. And then when Jacob goes to bless them, he crosses his arms and lays his right hand upon Ephraim. And when Joseph sees it, it displeases him. No, no, my father, not this. This Manasseh, he's the firstborn. And Jacob, Father Jacob says, in effect, you know, I may be blind, but I know what I'm doing. I know, my son, I know. He'll be blessed too, but his younger brother shall be the greater. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. By faith. There's an irony here, isn't it? Because this episode here is reminiscent of a different episode When Jacob's father, Isaac, was blind and called his firstborn Esau to hunt some game and bring it to him so he could bless his firstborn. And then Rebekah, overhearing it, went into action and had Jacob dress up like Esau to deceive father Isaac into getting the firstborn blessing for Jacob. 
Remember that. Now we come again to a blind father. But now a more, excuse me, more mature Jacob. And his hands are bound to the Lord. One commentator writes, once more the blessing was given to the younger. But this time there was no deception or bitterness. This time the blessing was given openly in accord with God's plan. See? No, no, my son, I know, I know, my son, but it's not going to be that way. The younger will be the greater. Jacob submits to God. He calls Joseph to submit to God. And we're all called tonight to submit to God's ways of grace. Normally, the blessing went to the firstborn. That was the order. The double portion went to the oldest. But God says, my way of grace isn't subject to human standards and human expectations. God's ways are not man's ways. One writer says, the will of God cannot be forced into conformity with human patterns and preconceptions. His power manifests itself precisely within the sphere of human weakness. And so it has been from the beginning. It was not the older and stronger Cain, but the younger and weaker Abel who found favor with God. Not Ishmael, but Isaac is the son of promise. It is Jacob, the younger and weaker, who obtains the blessing of the firstborn, and Esau, who receives the lesser inheritance. And then it's not Reuben, but it's Joseph. And of Joseph's sons, it's not Manasseh, but it's Ephraim. And so the writer says, the message is clear. The line of the promise is not the line of the flesh, but the line of faith. Or we could say it this way. The line of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world is not the line of human strength. It's not the line of human expectation. It's not the natural way in the world. It's the unexpected way. What's God teaching us? Well, God is is wanting to proclaim that salvation is of grace. It doesn't depend upon nature. It doesn't depend upon our expectations and norms. It's not of human wisdom. It's of God's power. Finally, Jesus is born of a young Jewish woman, born in a stable, hanging on a cross. Peter couldn't understand how this could be the way of the Messiah. Lots of paradoxes, aren't there? This morning we heard, you have to lose your life to gain life. Jacob lost Joseph to receive Joseph back with his offspring. God still works in our lives in these ways, doesn't he? Alan Ross quotes Dodds, a long quote about how we meet, this, we meet with these crossed hands of blessing frequently in Scripture. The younger son blessed above the elder. He notes that how often God reverses the order and blesses most that about which we had less concern. 
In the case of so much that we hold dear, Dodds writes, the same rule is seen. A pursuit we wish to be successful in, we can make little of and are thrown back from continually, while something else into which we have thrown ourselves almost accidentally prospers in our hands and blesses us. And we say to God, no, no, God, this, this is what I'm concerned about. This is the thing I want you to bless. This is where I want you to work. And God's over here. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Sometimes we see it in covenant homes. Parents who are really very diligent in raising up their children see a child go wayward. And parents who are not so faithful and not so zealous see a child rise up with great faith. See it in the things we work. We, we want to work in this ministry, and the Lord sets us over here and blesses us here. And we, we wonder, what are these crisscrossed hands? Don't you see, God, what you should do? No, no, my son. God has his ways, doesn't he? He blesses when and where and how he pleases. He is the God of sovereign grace. God's ways are not the ways of humankind. So there are mysteries to grace, aren't there, that we have to live with. One writer suggests that even death itself is a mystery, isn't it? Why should it be that that our final trial in life, why should it be that our entry into glory should be through death? And yet the Lord so often, well, basically always except for Elijah and Enoch, And for the ones who are still alive when Jesus returns, everyone else, it's through death that we enter glory. The mystery of grace, of the way God works, and yet to bow to that is to recognize that he is sovereign. And this is his work, and he will have all the glory. But finally tonight, look at the triumphant perseverance to glory. The triumphant perseverance to glory as I mentioned, the writer of Hebrews mentions three deathbed scenes, the one of Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph, to show that faith perseveres even to the final trial, to that dark moment of death. And still the patriarchs believed. And even though they had not yet received the fulfillment of the promises, of the multitude of offspring, of owning the land, of becoming now the full blessing to the world, still they believed. And Father Jacob here says in verse 21, Israel, Jacob, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. At the end of the previous chapter, he said, I want you to carry up my bones. Swear to me, you'll do it. He's set on believing that God will yet do what God has promised to do. This is remarkable. They're in Egypt. They're not in Canaan. They, he has, what, 70 people when he came there to the land of Egypt. They're not a big number, but he believes God will do it. God will fulfill his word. And so Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See? Hebrews 11 is about that. Faith is believing what you don't yet see. And we're called to persevere in that faith to the very end. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's what Jacob's doing as he dies. He's seeing and greeting the, the fulfillment from afar. God will bring you into the land. 
And they were pilgrims, the writer says, looking for that homeland. So Christ has come now, right, and risen from the dead and sits in heaven. And yet we don't have everything yet, do we? Do we see all the church gathered? Do we see all the elect assembled? Do we see our new home, the new heavens and earth? No. But we have the promise. We have the promise. And if we have the promise, then we're called to believe even what we do not yet see as we wait for the city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is what faith is. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so the writer of Hebrews says that not only did Jacob bless the sons of Joseph, but he worshipped. Now that worshipping may actually refer to what we read about at the end of chapter 47, that he worshipped, bowed himself on the head of his bed. But in any case, the writer of Hebrews connects it here to this moment of blessing and suggests to us that that this is the wonder of, of Jacob's faith, that in dying he worships, he trusts God to bless him and to bless him beyond death. Is this not the strange thing of a believer to worship in the midst of death? To worship when, as, when everything, as it were, in the eyes of the world is being lost. This is it. And yet for the Christian to believe beyond death that God will keep his word. We don't always die well. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes saints in their dying moments in the midst of pain do not speak as faithfully as they should. We don't always communicate to the next generation the kind of hope that we ought. But you know who died perfectly? You do. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't fail on his deathbed, did he? But he clung to his father. He proclaimed to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's able to announce, it is finished, I've paid for all your sins. He committed himself into the hands of the father. And it's in Jesus Christ that we can live in faith and we can die in faith. This is the story of the Lord God who keeps his word. And we reflect upon this. This life of faith. Faith in our living days. and Faith in our dying moments. In a God who always keeps his promises through Jesus Christ. Because in Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great work that you do, that you do not abandon us. We see that because you do not abandon Jacob, despite his scheming, despite his wavering, despite his inconsolable and rebellious grief. You were a father to him and a shepherd to him and the faithful covenant Lord. And he lived and he persevered because of your grace. Father, we thank you that you are also our God, that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of the New Testament church also. We thank you that the Redeemer has come, that the true Israel has appeared, our Lord Jesus, and that we belong to him. We pray that in Christ you would bless us with a faith that believes what cannot yet be seen. We thank you for all we have seen, and we long, Lord, to see the complete assembly of your people and the new heavens and the new earth. Oh God, help us to live in faith and to die in faith. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen.